This presentation is from Design Research 2021, Day 3. Our uh, first talk for the day, let's, let's get started. Uh, Vadika Bansal from Intuit um, joins us. Now, Vadika, I'm not sure where in the world you're joining us from. Hello. Hello. Whereabouts are you joining us from today? So I'm, it's actually evening where I'm at. I'm joining you from Washington, D.C. Right. Okay. Wonderful. Um, it's likely uh, cold and you're just starting to come out of the depths of uh, a northern winter. Definitely. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the nice weather next week, but right now it's way too cold for my taste. Yeah. Fair enough. Look, when you're ready, I'll hand over and you can share your screen and, and kick us off for the day. Thank you very much. Wonderful. All right. So um, hi, everyone. And thanks again, Steve, for the intro. Um, it's really great to be here with all of you today, even though I'm on the other side of the world. Um, so as Steve said, uh, my name is Vivica Bunzel, and I lead a team, a UX team at Intuit. And um, I'm going to be talking to you today about pensieves and crystal balls, which I will get into a little bit more um, soon. But generally, what I'm going to be talking to you about is how we can do research to make in, in such a way that we make sure that we are accounting for how um, bias can kind of creep in when we ask people about their past, as well as when we ask people about um, their, uh, you know, their future, which we're, we're we tend to be not very good at predicting. So essentially, um, one of the things that I, I think about a lot, I have a background in business and psychology. And so I'm always thinking about the ways in which psychology and the human brain um, kind of influence how we how we do everything, right? And that, in, that includes how we can do better research, how we can inform better decisions, um, and how we can design better things. And so I'm really excited to, you, to be speaking with all of you today about this because it combines a couple of my favorite things. Um, one is applied behavioral science. I'm going to get to share some of my favorite experiments with you, which is exciting. Um, another is uh, just how to, you know, doing research to inform better design. And then finally, also how uh, I kind of got to find, I found a way to bring Harry Potter into the fold. So I don't know how many of you are Harry Potter fans here. Um, hopefully we have a couple of Potterheads in the house, but, um, and if not, don't worry, I won't use any references that you won't understand at all. And if I do, I promise to explain them. All right, so with that, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and get started here. All right, so I wanted to start with showing you this cognitive bias codex, which some of you may have already seen, might be familiar with. Don't worry if you can't read it. I don't intend for you to be able to. It's it's tiny, I know. Um, and I didn't come up with this, by the way. This the creators are listed at the bottom of the slide, um, and it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful culmination of all of these different biases that affect us as humans, um, and that kind of, in some ways, help and in some ways hurt our decision making, and so. Today, I'm not gonna be talking about all of them. I think it would, even if we had all day together, it wouldn't be enough to talk about them all. But I am gonna be talking to you about a sliver of this massive wheel. And so I'm especially gonna be talking to you about the biases that can crop that can crop up when we do research that invites people to um, recall their past experiences, as well as the, when we do research that invites them to predict their future behavior, their future emotions, things like that. So, um, there's this great quote by Margaret Mead, who is an American cultural anthropologist, and um, she says, 
What people say, what people do, and what people say they do are entirely different things. And that's probably not a surprise to most of us, but this is largely what I'll be focusing on today. You know, what are some of these gaps in what people say, what they do, what they say they do, and how can we try to bridge them? So I wanted to start off with a quick story about some research gone awry. So I don't know how many of you remember this, but about a decade ago now, um, this film named Avatar came out and it was huge. It was, you know, it was making headlines, um, beating all sorts of records, and it became extremely, extremely popular. Now, one of the other things that happened right around this time was that companies started getting really excited about this idea of 3D TVs. And there were several um, TV manufacturers that actually decided to go all out on 3D TVs. And there was a lot of enthusiasm about them. And this enthusiasm actually came from a lot of research. So there was research that was conducted that showed that people were jazzed about the idea of being able to, um, to, to watch TV on, in 3D. And um, that sounded great, which is why the companies went out and, and did that. But as you may have guessed, um, 3D TVs didn't really stick around. They didn't really gain a lot of traction. They ended up being kind of a flop. And part of the reason that this happened, part of the reason that the research said that 3D TVs were gonna be great, but they ended up not being so great, is because the research was very heavily reliant on people predicting the future and kind of leaning on the past a little bit too much. So people had just had this experience watching this movie Avatar and everyone was really excited about it. And so that was a salient memory that they might've been over indexing on. And then also there was the, the fact that if you ask someone like, do you want to, would you use a 3D TV? People were really excited because it seemed interesting. It seemed new, but in actuality, 3D TVs weren't so great because it turned out they required glasses, you know, just to watch. Um, they often caused like neck strain and headaches. And there was all these additional costs for like accessories that people weren't so happy about. And so even though the decision was stemmed from research, it didn't really work so well because the research was rooted in a lot of bias. And um, just because someone likes something in the moment doesn't necessarily mean they're going to like it down the road. And so it's kind of a good cautionary tale for us to keep in mind. So if the kind of the big gist of what I want to convey to you today is that, you know, our memories are fallible and predictions can be misleading. So today I'm going to talk to you about some ways in which our memories can be fallible, some ways in which our predictions can be misleading, and what are some things that we can do as researchers to help mitigate some of the bias? We can't get rid of it completely, but we can at least try to, to make it a little bit better. All right, so chapter one, the Pensieve. Um, for the Potterheads in the house, uh, you might not need an explanation, but for those of you who are a little rusty or and or have never um, really engaged with the Harry Potter uh, universe, basically a Pensieve is this like magical device that allows you to review memories. So for instance, if I wanted to remember this experience where I'm sitting, how this is going, I would, you know, I would have a memory and I could take it out and like put it in my pensive. And if I ever wanted to relive it, I could take it out again and relive that memory, which is pretty cool. But in the, 
in, in our world, in the muggle world, um, in the non-wizarding world, we don't really have something like a pensee where we can just go in and have people completely, the closest we have is a recording like this, right? Um, but we can't do that for all the pivotal moments in our users' lives that we, we might want some insight into. And so what we end up doing is relying on their memory. So we do have to ask people that we do research with, you know, to share parts of their past with us, whether it's like general stories or very specific product experiences. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how memory is fallible. So people tend to tell us things that they think that we want to hear, which is social desirability, which I'm sure you're familiar with. They also tend to tell us things that they remember because they're constrained by their memories. So if they don't remember doing something, they don't remember a certain experience, even if it happened, there's not there's no way for them to convey that to us. Um, and also they tend to rationalize their behavior. And so a lot of times we have no way of knowing if, for instance, we ask someone about their motivation to do something, we don't really know if that motivation is truly what motivated them in that moment, or if it's something that they've kind of come up with a reason for after the fact. So we're gonna focus on um, how some of these things manifest in our research. So to start, um, I'm gonna tell you about one of my favorite experiments, which involves a car crash, um, much like this, this, some of you might see, remember the scene from uh, the Chamber of Secrets. And so this is a, a, an experiment that deals with car crashes and leading questions. And we all know that leading questions are bad, right? We, we avoid them like the plague. We try really hard not to say things like, oh, you like this, right? Or how much do you love X experience? Because doing that would make it really hard for us to ever um, get any accurate, reliable responses. Well, one of the things that is really important to remember is sometimes leading questions don't even have to sound leading. Sometimes one word can be all it takes to make a question leading versus just you know, a little bit more neutral. So the experiment that I want to tell you about is uh, by Loftus and Palmer. Um, Elizabeth Loftus is a um, an American psychologist who is very big in the, in the realm of like reconstructive memory. And what she did is she really wanted to understand whether cues in leading questions could alter people's memories. So what she did is she showed people videos, and these are college students, she showed them videos of car crashes. And she had five different experimental groups. So the five experimental groups um, were each group saw this question about how fast were the cars going when they, one group saw when they smashed, the other group saw when they collided, the third group saw when they bumped, et cetera, et cetera, you get the idea. And so each of these groups saw the same question, the only difference being that very last word that kind of described how the cars made contact. And again, they watched all of the same videos. And what she found is that just by changing that one word in the question, people's responses for the average speed changed dramatically. And so for instance, the people that said that, uh, or the people that saw the question that said smashed, how, far, how fast were the cars going when they smashed, they on average, reported that the cars were going at 40.8 miles per hour. Whereas those that saw the question that said 50, uh, that said uh, contacted, they saw it going at, um, at 31.8 miles per hour. So there was almost like a nine mile per hour difference in their perceptions of the speed, all based on that one question, which is kind of, it's kind of incredible if you think about it. 
And it goes to show how important it is that we're really, really mindful of what kinds of hints or cues we might be embedding in our questions. So to follow up on this, um, she was able to kind of gather and ascertain that, okay, so the way the, word, the question was worded obviously impacted people's responses, but she wanted to know if it actually impacted their memory. And so like, does it actually alter their memory or does it change the way, only change the way they respond? So what she did is she followed up and with another experiment and with two of those conditions this time, just smashed and hit as the question. So how fast were these cars going when they hit each other or how fast were these, car going, these cars going when they smashed each other? And in this condition, um, she, she, ended up, she asked the follow-up question, did you see any broken glass, yes or no? It turned out that the people that were asked that saw the smashed question, they 32% of them said, yes, they did see broken glass in the videos that they had seen earlier. Whereas in the condition that said, um, that saw hit, only 14% of them said yes, which is a pretty significant difference. And the craziest part is there was no glass in any of the videos. So in some ways people reconstructed their memory to match the question. And so this really just goes to show how strong the power of suggestion is and how reconstructive memory really does play a factor. And this is why we need to be so, so careful when we're putting together our own questions. So again, information embedded in our questions can affect the results, whether it's a word, whether it's an entire phrase that's leading. Um, it can be hard sometimes for us to figure out which is which, but it's really important that we try to avoid the most obvious ones. Um, and even the ones that maybe don't come off as obviously leading, always try to um, take, a, take a look at the words that you're using and see whether they might be embedding some sort of clues in there. All right, so the next, um, the next kind of bias that I wanna talk about or, or like construct is called the peak end rule. And the peak end rule to, to, make, to help you understand this one, I want you to think about the last time you were on a roller coaster. So the last time you were on a roller coaster, you probably can't, and, and because of COVID, it might've been a while ago now, you probably can't recount every single twist and turn. You probably don't remember all, in fact, you probably didn't remember that even right as you ended on that roller coaster. That would have been a lot to remember. But you probably could remember after you ended the ride, whether you enjoyed it, you know, whether it ended well, you could probably remember parts where you had a lot of fun or parts where you didn't. Um, and so you probably have a couple of peak moments in your head. And the way that this works, which sounds a little, uh, a little silly, but the way that this works is that we kind of have these two selves. We have one self that we call the experiencing self um, and the other that's called the remembering self. And this comes out of Daniel Kahneman's work. He's kind of the father of behavioral economics. And what he says is that the experiencing self kind of talks, it kind of captures how we're feeling right now in this moment, whereas the remembering self captures how we're feeling overall. So for instance, to get really meta right now in this moment, you, your experience, I'm hoping your experiencing self resembles the slide a little bit, but hopefully, you know, you're, you're happy, you're in good spirits, um, you're enjoying this, but it might be that in the next moment or on the next slide, you might be like, I'm really bored. And so that experience self changes, right? But your remembering self, that may, even if that experiencing self changes, your remembering self could still stay constant, um, depending on basically the peaks and the ending. And so just like the roller coaster example, if for instance, you ended the roller coaster by getting sick, 
that is instantly going to make you feel like that roller coaster ride was terrible, even if you had a lot of good actual moments along the way. Um, and on the flip side, even if there were moments where you were you were scared and you looked a little bit like this in your experiencing self, by the end of it, you might just feel if you felt thrilled by the end of it and you felt good at the end, you might actually be like, you know what, that was kind of fun. So how this um, experience, how this remembering self is calculated is um, it's not actually an average of all of the moments of the experiences you've had. Again, it's kind of an average of the way something ends and the, the peaks, the highs and the lows that you experience. And so if you think about it, when you're doing research with someone on a product, let's say that you're, you're working on, and you ask them to tell you about an ex experience or, your, or their experience with their product, it's very likely going to be over-indexing on the peaks, so the times that your product really delighted them or the times that it really didn't, and maybe their most recent memory of that product, right? Or even within one experience, those peaks and that ending is going to matter a lot more. So it's really important to keep that in mind because sometimes what's salient isn't necessarily representative of all of the experiences and all of the moments that someone has had. So as I mentioned, Daniel Kahneman is, is the one that has described this at length. And he says, you know, odd as it may seem, I am my remembering self and the experiencing self who does my living is like a stranger to me. And it's largely because our memories just are not that good. We cannot remember every single moment of our experiences. And so we have this remembering self that kind of takes over and just remembers a little bit. So when you're talking to your participants and when you're asking them questions about what happened to the past, just remember that you're only getting their remembering self. You know, their memory is probably heavily anchored in those highs, those lows, those endings. And so it's the it's better if you can to make them do a task in front of you. Um, that way you're getting glimpses into their experiencing self as well. So again, the least likely experience is often the most likely memory. Um, we tend to remember, as Daniel Gilbert says, the best of times and the worst of times, but not the most likely of times. So always just keep this in mind um, as you're asking people to recount the past. Um, and the, net, the third bias I wanna talk about under the past is a bias called the hindsight bias. And I'm sure everyone here has experienced it at some point or another. It's also affectionately known as like the know it, knew it all along phenomenon, where basically, let's say you read a book or you watch a movie and something happens. Um, after it happens, a lot of times you can say, oh yeah, I knew that was gonna happen. Or I knew that character was gonna was good or was, was bad. You know, you almost, once you have the knowledge, it feels obvious in retrospect. And this happens a lot, you know, when it comes to the stock market, when it comes to football games, whatever else. Essentially, we tend to transform an event psychologically in our heads after it occurs to make it seem more predictable than it actually was. Um, we kind of find reasons for why things happened and, and we convince ourselves that we knew certain things were going to happen or we would have figured certain things out, even if that's not technically accurate. Um, some of you might have experienced this even with your stakeholders and your, your partners that you work with um, when you do research. Sometimes after a research study, the results are released. People are like, oh, yeah, these, these findings are obvious. Of course, we already knew that stuff. Right. And you know that, well, before this, people didn't know this stuff. But after the fact, hindsight bias kicks in. And so one of the um, things to keep in mind is this is really common during usability testing. A lot of times people will say something like, um, they'll, they'll fumble through something and then they'll say, oh, you know, oh, I totally would have seen that button if it was a little bigger. So they kind of rationalize 
what they would have done, even though they don't actually know that that's true. Um, when I was a consultant, um, I worked across you know many different industries, and one of the things that always baffled me was how how one thing was so unchanging, and that was that no matter how much people tended to struggle during a usability test, you know they would say like this was they wouldn't say they would genuinely struggle. They would fail a lot of the tasks and things like that. Um, but then at the end, if I asked them how that experience was, a lot of times they would say something like, oh, you know, it, it was easy. It actually it actually makes a ton of sense. I just I just messed up. But like it was actually really easy. And in some ways, that's their hindsight bias kicking in now that they know where certain items are that they were looking for. In retrospect, it seems easy. So I would really encourage you to make sure that you're not um, over anchoring on what people say about how their experience was, especially in usability testing, and really just paying attention to what that experience was. How are they actually going through it versus what are they rationalizing after the fact? Um, the second one on this, this slide I know could be a little contentious because probing is part of our jobs and it's we always want to ask why, we always want to understand what's going on and, and what the motivations are for people doing things. But I would argue that we have to be really careful about when we probe. We all obviously want to make sure that we're setting a stage where people feel really comfortable talking to us, where um, we leave enough silence in the conversation that they that they open up and that they share what they're thinking. Um, but we don't really want to probe if someone doesn't know why they did something. If we probe too much, partially because of social desirability, they're not going to want to leave us hanging. They're not going to want to just say they don't know over and over again. And so people might actually come up with rationalizations, you know, and that's not really helpful in giving us good results. So I would say like with probing, definitely it's important to use judgment calls there. And of course, in the moment is always preferable to after the fact. And there's there's limitations. We can't always be there in the moment. Um, but there are times where we might be able to, for instance, use something like a diary study where we can get people to document they're in the moment thoughts and we can actually see that change over time so that we don't fall prey to this bias quite as much. So again, um, we find reasons for the events that happened in our past. And um, this is kind of almost a coping mechanism for us as humans sometimes, but it can present some challenges when research participants give us reasons for things that they've done that we don't necessarily know whether or not that's the real reason. And so there's a whole there's so many other biases at play when we talk about the past. There's so many limitations. You know, we haven't even, like I said, I'm just scratching the surface here. There's a lot in terms of memory and how our attention works that we could dive into. Um, these are just a couple of others that I think are really important to keep in mind when you are conducting research with um, and th that asks about people's past. And um, so, yeah, these are just all things to keep in mind. There's a lot, but I think there are some small things that we can do to help. All right, and so for this next chapter, I'm gonna talk about the crystal ball. Some of you remember the crystal ball professor, from Professor Trelawney in the, in the series. And what's really interesting about, so the crystal ball or kind of predicting the future is that imagining the future is an ability that from an evolutionary standpoint is very, very recent for humans. And in fact, we're the only animal that even thinks about the future, like other animals don't do that. And even though we can do it, we are pretty bad at it. We're not very good at predicting our future emotions and behaviors. And this is, you know, evidenced by, I mentioned the 3D TVs example, where a lot of us might've said that, oh yeah, that sounds amazing. I'll totally use a 3D TV. I can't wait. 
Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that our predictions matched up with what actually happened. And so not only can we not predict the future just in general, but we're even bad about predicting our own preferences, our own futures. Um, and there's a lot of questions that come up with things like, for instance, questions like NPS, like, would you recommend this or would you do that? And a lot of research has confirmed that asking people if would they do something doesn't always amount to their actual, if you map that to their actual behavior, there's often some incongruence there. So as appealing as it might be to ask about the future, I would really implore you to check in your research when you're doing that and see if there's a way that you might be able to get around asking about the future or get more specific when you do so. And I'll talk about that a little bit more soon. So when it comes to the future, um, people tend to be really rooted in the present. We tend to put a disproportionate weight on the here and now. We tend to be bad at predicting how we will feel in the future. And what I mean by that is we tend to know, for instance, that a certain event might lead us to feel negatively or positively, but we're not really great at predicting to what extent. Like we don't know if that negative or positive emotion is gonna last a month or a year. We, we tend to think things are gonna last a lot longer than they actually do. Um, and we also over-index on the fact that we are going to be the same people today as we are tomorrow, when we all know that that's not the case, right? We change, we evolve, but in the moment, we always feel like we're going to be really similar, which is why a lot of our predictions end up so bad. So I want to tell you about another one of my favorite experiments, which was conducted by um, Professor Lowenstein from CMU in 1999. And... Um, the, the premise of this experiment was essentially trying to understand present bias, which is present bias is basically that, you know, we make choices today that future us may not really appreciate, may not really prefer. Um, so what he did in this experiment is that he compiled a list of 40 films, two of which were these ones, Sleepless in Seattle and Schindler's List were both on that list of films. And of these 40 films, half of them were films that were kind of what you could call demanding films like Schindler's List, like required mental energy, were critically acclaimed. And then the other half were considered sort of easygoing films, films that, you know, you could just watch without having to think too much about them. Now, participants were not told that this is what the experiment was about. They were just told to fill out the survey. And as a result of, um, of filling out that survey, they were, they were told that, you know, we're gonna give you three free video loans from the library. And this is, Netflix was still getting its start. So the, back then this was a little bit of a bigger deal than it is now. And um, the films were presented without categorization. So even though there were 40 films with 20 of, in each category of like the easy versus the demanding ones, people didn't know, they weren't labeled that way. So people had no idea they could pick whatever they wanted. Well, what they found, uh, so the way that this worked is there were two conditions in this experiment. One condition, half the, half the participants were asked to choose a film to watch that same, um, so half the participants were in a simultaneous condition. And basically what that means is on day one, they were, they were asked, here's 40 films, pick what film you wanna watch today and also tell us which ones you wanna take out for tomorrow and the day after. Meanwhile, there was another uh, experimental condition that was sequential. And that one said, that one said, okay, pick a film today and then tomorrow come back and film the next, pick the next film, the next day come back and you can pick the next film. And what the experiment revealed is that in the scenario with when people were picking simultaneously, so when they were choosing a film to watch on the same day, um, and but then they were choosing films for future days as well, 
what they did is they were far more likely to pick an easy film for day one, and they were more likely to pick demanding, so to speak, demanding films for days two and three. Meanwhile, participants in the other group, the sequential group where they got to pick each day fresh, they tended to just pick easy films every day. Um, and that kind of makes sense, right? Because it, we generally, when given the choice between doing something easy and hard, a lot of times we'll do whatever requires the least amount of effort, but we always want to be better in the long run. And so if someone offers you, there's also an experiment around this, but if someone offers you like fruit or cake, in theory, you're like, oh, fruit is good for me. Tomorrow I'll eat fruit, today I'll eat cake. But that's kind of what this experiment showed is like, depending on when they had to make this choice, um, their choice changed. So what, what the results showed is that Schindler's List was chosen only once on the day of choice, but it was chosen 13 times more on for future days. So people always felt like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a movie I should watch, but just not today. I, I don't want to do it today, but I will eventually, you know? Um, and the percentage of so-called highbrow or like demanding films that were chosen um, was higher when people picked all on the same day because our future selves were aspirational. We always think that we're going to be better than we are. We always think we're going to have more patience, you know, than we do in the moment. So that to me was just a really, really interesting um, way to showcase how, how much we are rooted in the present and how our choices change over time. And so I was thinking about, you know, just even looking at my own life, there's so many things that I technically want to do that future me should already, present me should already be doing, but future me should definitely do, right? So future me is going to eat healthier and is going to stop procrastinating and is going to get to inbox zero and all these different things. But the only ones I've actually been doing are the ones in green, the rest. And this is just a partial list. I should add, this is a very, very truncated list of all of the things I want future me to be doing, but it's also very realistic in the sense that this is how a lot of us work. A lot of times, you know, we go to the grocery store and we buy healthy food. We buy all this fruit. I know I've certainly done that where I buy fruit and I'm like, I can't wait to eat all this healthy fruit. And then it sits and then it goes bad. And then I feel terrible about it because I waited too long. And in the moment when I was purchasing things, it was a great decision. But over time, every day I kept saying, oh, tomorrow, 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 and tomorrow never really came. So again, we think we're going to be better than we are. A lot of times um, we're more disciplined in the future than we are today. In our, in our minds, we're more disciplined. Um, this is kind of the crux behind New Year's, New Year's resolutions. It's why everyone hits the gym on January 1st and by March kind of thins out. Um, so we tend to get more rational as we have to, as we're forced to wait. Um, and so I love this quote um, where from Hara Estraf Morano, where she says, the future is always ideal. The fridge is stocked, the weather clear, the train runs on schedule and meetings end on time. Today, well, stuff happens, right? And I'm sure all of you can relate to a little bit, uh, to some extent with this, because this is just how it works. Nothing is ever supposed to go wrong in the future. And yet it always sometimes does. And, you know, the same goes for our participants. So when we ask people, would you do this? You know, would you buy this? Um, would you spend this amount on this product? When we're asking them about a future state, they too are being honest to the best of their ability because they also are aspirational about their future. And they, in the moment, think that, yes, I do. I would use this and I will buy this um, and I would spend that amount of money. But in the future, you know, they're not necessarily, their conditions aren't necessarily as peachy. So in the future, they're imagining that they'll have the money for it, that they'll be organized, et cetera, et cetera. But 
by the time the future comes around, that could change. So the things that they said are true in terms of they're telling us their truth, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they will hold true over time. So it's always important to take, a, take that kind of stuff with a little bit of a grain of salt. So a quick recap on present bias and hyperbolic discounting. I know I threw a lot at you, but basically we focus on the here and now. We're aspirational about our future. And when forced to wait, we tend to get a little bit more rational, just like with the people in the experiment, the Schindler's List experiment. Um, what, if they picked each day, they would just pick what was easy. But if they picked in advance, they tended to pick choices that were maybe a little bit more rational. And so it's we're, we're bad at being aware of the fact that we're, we always think that we're going to make things make changes. Um, but that doesn't always happen. And so. What this means for our research is, you know, our preference, like people's preferences are time inconsistent. And so people are always going to speak to their ideal selves, to their ideal set of circumstances, to their ideal states, whenever we ask them about the future. And so unless someone is incredibly self-aware, that's generally what we're going to hear. And actual adoption, actual purchase could differ. And so whenever you're asking willingness to purchase kind of questions, the more you can get close to something that's rooted in something that's rooted in behavior or that someone can, that, that's closer to the future, the more likely you are to get information that's valid. All right, and then the next uh, bias in, in this, in, uh, when we think about the future that I wanna talk about is called effective forecasting. And that's effective with an A, like affect. Um, and basically what effective forecasting said, this is, this is by um, Dan Gilbert, um, who's a, He's done a lot of research in, in happiness, um, and he talks about how we're not really great at predicting our emotions. So we're good at predicting, again, whether they're going to be positive or negative. I kind of love this. I love the unadulterated joy in this picture. Um, a lot of times we're good at predicting whether we're going to feel joy or whether we're going to feel sadness. So, for instance, you might know that after getting a promotion, you're going to feel happy or after going through a breakup, you're going to feel sad. But a lot of times we're bad at figuring out exactly what that intensity is going to be or what that duration is going to be. So people tend to think that, you know, after getting a promotion, that they'll be happier for way longer and way more intensely than is true. And the same goes for something like a breakup. There's actually been studies that have shown that if you ask people about how they're going to feel after a breakup, a lot of times they know they're going to feel bad, but they assume that they're going to be sad forever. A lot of pop culture songs will, will reflect that kind of feeling and that intention. Um, and part of the reason for this is, you know, we kind of have this like psychological immune system where we bounce back. So even when things happen, we kind of bounce back and forth between these highs and these lows. So things never really last quite as long and as intensely as we anticipate that they will. Um, so the bottom line here is good and bad events tend to be less intense and more fleeting than, than people predict. And so full disclosure, this is not a real quote. This is more just an aggregate of something that I've heard many, many times, which is if you could add that feature, you know, it'd make my life so much easier or like it would change my life. I 100% would buy it. I would never leave you guys. A lot of times people make comments and statements like this um, and they mean it in the moment. They genuinely mean it because they're envisioning their future in, in this way where they're like, if I had access to this thing, all of a sudden my life is going to change. And that is probably true in that it probably will to some extent. Um, but what may not be quite as accurate is the extent of that emotion and for how long it's going to last. And so just because someone says that, you know, 
if you add this feature, I will stick with this product forever. That doesn't necessarily mean that's true. I mean, you already knew that, but just a reminder that we should always take claims of people's future emotions directionally, but we should take the intensity and the duration with a little bit of a grain of salt. I'm going to keep saying that, I know. So, yep, we overestimate the intensity and duration of future emotions, um, both good and bad. So, and, and sometimes this is called impact bias. And so it's really important that when we ask people about how they're going to feel, we recognize that even if they're giving us an answer to the best of their ability, that answer is probably not going to reflect reality fully. And the last bias I want to go over about the future and when we ask about it is called projection bias. So projection bias is basically that people, we tend to underestimate how much our current and our future preferences and values will align. So for example, if, you know, in maybe in high school, and obviously there's exceptions to this rule, but a lot of times when two people date in high school, maybe they think that they're going to be together forever. They think that, oh, I'm always going to care about this person. I'm always going to be the way I am today. But we know that that's not necessarily true. Um, similarly, when we proclaim as kids that we're going to have, I bet many of us here did not say like, I'm going to be a researcher or a designer when I grow up. You know, a lot of times you say something that in the moment feels true, but that changes over time. And so projection bias, as the name implies, is basically us projecting how we what our values and beliefs are right now and preferences are onto future us, which may or may not actually be true. Um, if you've ever gone grocery shopping on an empty stomach, you know what I'm talking about because you know you're, you just end up buying out the store thinking that it's gonna be, you're so hungry in that moment that it seems like the right thing to do, but then by the time it actually comes time for you to, um, to eat, you realize like, oh my God, I bought way more than I needed. And it's because you were projecting that hunger state onto your permanent state, which didn't match up. Um, so in research, if someone's talking to us about a product in the moment, they might be really interested. They might assume that future them would also be really interested because that's what they're focusing on them in the moment. Um, but in reality, in the future, they might have competing priorities. There might be competitors. There might, they might be distracted. Um, their needs might have changed. And so, there's nothing that we, you know, we have as researchers, we can't, there's always going to be some sort of a lag between when we do the research and when things come out into product and, and how things manifest. So of course, this is not one that we can eliminate completely, but it's just an important one to keep in mind because the, the closer and the quicker those feedback loops can be, the better. Um, and it's good for us to know that those preferences aren't stable. So we can take we can make sure that when we're extrapolating, we're taking that into account and we're using those some of those things as conservative estimates versus treating them as, you know, completely elaborate truth. So again, we think our current needs and our values will be our future ones. And in some time, in some cases they are, but a lot of times they're not. And one of the best ways to kind of work through this is to try and ask if you do have to ask about the future, which generally I recommend against if possible. But if you do have to ask about the future, try asking about the near future. Don't just ask people generally about the future, the nebulous future. Try to ask them something that they can actually picture um, that's as close as possible to their current reality so that that projection bias is a little bit less. 
All right. So those are, again, just a couple of the many, many, many biases that we could talk about today. But um, I now want to give you a couple of ideas that I have for ways that you might be able to tackle some of these biases, some ways that you might be able to not eliminate them, but at least try to make them a little bit less prominent in your work. So um, here's some practical potions, and there's seven of them that I'm going to share with you today. So just a quick recap. Memory is fallible. These are a couple of the constructs that contribute to that, as well as speculation is misleading. As, as good as people's intentions are, as much as they want to give us accurate information, um, they can only give us information as accurate as their own brains will allow them to dream up. And so we always have to take this with, um, with a little bit of a critical lens when we're listening to these answers. So the first tip is limit your time to recall. Now we didn't talk too much about short-term, long-term memory and things like that. But the fact of the matter is the longer that we wait, unless a memory is very salient or emotional for some reason, typically over time, our memories fade, right? That's true for everyone. That's true for our participants. That's also true for us. And so it's really important that we take time to proactively schedule synthesis and debrief sessions. So one of the things I always tell my researchers to do is if you know that you're going to have, you know, a bunch of sessions back to back, things like that, before you have them all, um, just go ahead and put them in sort of like a, just just put some quick information in between. Um, Steve, sorry, I just saw you pop up. Oh, okay, sounds good. Um, so yeah, basically just try to schedule some sessions so that you don't start mixing up you know, one, one participant from the other, because our memories are also just as prone to distortion as anybody else. So try to do your research as close to the experience as possible. That's another big tip. Um, try to think about your recruitment windows very carefully, because you know that if it's been too, way too, like if you say, if you recruit someone to tell you about a certain error they had in a, in a flow, and you're not talking to them until two minutes after the, or two, not two minutes, two minutes would be great. If you're not talking to them until two weeks after the fact, they probably won't remember. So really try to shorten those recruitment windows if at all possible. And again, in context is always better than, than relying on people's recall. All right, and then triangulate. So this one, I think you all are probably pretty amply familiar with, but basically triangulate across teammates, um, look at both quantitative and qualitative research to see if you can get to the bottom of the story, because a lot of times self-report and behavioral data um, is, is looking at both of those together is a really good way for you to figure out if there are gaps. And wherever there are gaps, that's a really good clue that you need to do some more digging and maybe something is amiss with the data. Third, frame questions neutrally. Um, we talked about Loftus and reconstructive memory a lot and how even just one word can change an entire uh, response and experience. So try to frame your questions really neutrally. Um, take care to use words that don't have embedded meaning that you may not have realized at first. Um, use open-ended questions when you can and do cognitive testing. That's one thing that I think is a very underrated tool. But when I was a consultant, we almost never let a survey go live until we had done cognitive testing to make sure that the questions actually made sense, they weren't biased, etc. Number four, strive for diversity. There have been some presentations already that have done a really wonderful job covering some of this, so I'm not gonna go into too much detail, but diversity always reduces the chances of biases compounding. And avoid hypotheticals. Like I just said, you know, you wanna focus on observable behavior as much as you can. Um, limit the use of asking, what would you do if? Because people are notoriously bad at 
being able to answer that, honestly. Um, and if you do have to ask about the future, don't ask about the distant future. So don't just say, what would you do if you could use this? Instead, say, what would you do if I gave you the, if I could give you access to this tomorrow? Tell me what you would do. Or what would you do the next time you had to use this? Help people kind of frame and, and imagine them actually using it. And that's going to make it easier for them to give you an answer that matches. Get specific about the past. So instead of asking something like, how often, um, instead of asking, how often do you do X? So if you ask me how often I exercised, I would have a really hard time telling you that. And I probably wouldn't want to tell you that it's very, very little. But if you said, when was the last time you exercised? Or how many times did you exercise in the last week? That is a much better way to get concrete about people's answers for the past. And it's much more likely to be accurate that way too. And again, we talked about probing already. So probe, but just be careful. Use your judgment about, are you probing enough or are you probing too much so that it's gonna to lead to rationalization? And then make sure to keep in mind peak end rule. You know, when someone's explaining an experience, um, you wanna try and ascertain, is this an experience that's really common? Or is this an experience that's just happened once and it's very salient in their mind? And just because it's happened once does not make it any less important. I want to call that out. Sometimes the most important experiences for us to fix are the ones that are salient. But it's still important for us to just get a sense of which ones are happening a lot versus which ones are happening once in a while. And then finally, bring out the salt shaker. I've mentioned several times to take certain things with a grain of salt. And so watch out for the rationalizations of, I would have done this. Um, treat answers to hypotheticals as aspirational, as ideal, because it's not always in line with people's reality. And beware of um, emotions that are exaggerated. People don't mean to exaggerate those emotions, but they might, might just not know that they are exaggerated in that way. And so finally, um, you know, I know we don't have pensieves or crystal balls, but we do have some tips and tricks that hopefully can help. And um, remember that even if people's answers aren't perfect, that doesn't mean we're not going to do research and ask them these questions, but we can get smart about the way we ask questions, the way we observe behavior, the way we triangulate it all. Um, and I hope these tips are helpful to you and that you can continue to, um, yeah, make some, make some good experiences with them. So thanks so much. Um, and feel free to get in touch with me if you'd like, either on LinkedIn or Twitter, I'm a little bit more active on the latter, but yeah, would love to hear from you. Thank you so much.